in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, both the church corporately and you personally. Verse 11, having being filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness, we're going to see that in just a minute as one of the marks of being born again. But the understanding, beloved, of all of that comes through the time you spend in the Word. Invaluable to the health of the church body and your personal spiritual health. If you're missing that time in the Word, these things then are lacking in your life and in the church body that you will provide to them. And so, church takes care of the church first and foremost by setting time aside for personal study and prayer. I encourage you often that the church takes care of the church. Paul instructs the church often to bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, exhort one another. And so, these are things that uh, you can do when you know how to do them because you read the Word and you're in it each day. So, let that be part of your life. It's so good to be back together with you in our continued study of these next two letters, doing uh, what you've been doing all week together for this 50 minutes. And this last section particularly, uh, they gave us such great examples of marks of what faithful, authentic mystery looks like. I'd like you to pick up in verse 5, if you would, and we're going to read all the way through the end of this chapter as we approach the end of this study. Test yourselves, verse 5 says, to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For, verse 9, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And this we also pray for, that you be made complete. Verse 10, for this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Last time we were together, we paused our study to get a better understanding of verse 5. Verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test. As we looked at that passage, I said this is, and you probably recognize this, it's a thorny passage. No matter where you reach for it, it'll jab you. It's not something that the church likes to do, and it's very easy to read the verse and just shake your head and move on and not give the proper evaluation I think that Paul intends for the church to give. He's been dealing with difficulty in the church. He's been dealing with false teachers. He's been dealing with people who have been severe and undermined the ministry. And so they have said to Paul, we want to have proof that you are who you say you are. Paul switches the tables and said, how about this? How about you evaluate yourself and see if you're in the faith? Because he recognizes that continued unrepentant sin many times is the trademark of not being born again, even though you're faithful in the church. And we looked at the danger of not evaluating yourself correctly and what that might look like from some passages in Hebrews and, and evidence that you won't pass the test, those that are in the church but not in Christ. And so I won't go back over that again, but we can just finish up that type of evidence you are looking for to indicate that you passed the test by saying just a few things. Some may say, you know, I prayed an emotional prayer and at, at this certain time, 
Uh, I walked down the aisle and to an altar at this certain time, and I think we can see from all that we've looked at in the past, and particularly past week, that this isn't a valid basis on which to verify your spiritual condition, a past historical event that you remember. It's important, of course, I think, if, you, if it's important to you that you remember something that occurred, but only to the extent that that extends on out through your life and has grown since that time. So you can't hold on to some historical event that's not valid to pass the test. Some may say, I've been in church a long time, I'm very faithful, I like coming to church. And I think we can see from all we've looked at, particularly in Hebrews last week, that many who are in, in the church but not in Christ like coming to church for one reason or another. What kind of fruit are they bearing? Because we saw last time that, that the rain falls, which just talks about the ministry of the Word, and it falls on the same soil, types of soil, but one produces thorns and thistles, and the other produces the right kind of fruit. And so that's not a valid thing to say. Coming to church won't do it. Some may say, I really love God. I love Jesus. I get really emotional during worship time. And again, we can see from everything that we, we saw before, that's not a valid basis for which to verify your spiritual condition. Your emotions that are up and down are not a good way to say, okay, I passed the test because that's true of me. Some may say, I've lived a good life. I live a good life and I do the right kinds of things. And again, I think we can see from everything we've looked at this last week, this isn't a valid basis for which to verify your spiritual condition. Those who are apostate, we saw last time, that's what Jesus said, actually said of those who said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, you workers of, here's the word, lawlessness, that's apostate. Apostate is not uh, separated from Christ and not in Christ because they don't believe Christ. It's the opposite. An apostate is someone who understands what Christ expects and understands what the gospel expects and then rejects that. And those who are an apostate, though, we saw in, in Hebrews, can conform in such a way that no one suspects that their, their real condition is actually outside of Christ. And so we'll see that again in just a moment. So on top of what we learned then, uh, maybe these things can be helpful. If you really want to know on the positive side, because we looked at the negative side last time, if you want to know on the positive side, you can answer these in the affirmative. These are likely uh, to, uh, to validate your relationship to Christ. You're going to see and desire to do the law of God. You see the law of God, you desire to do it. Now, before you were redeemed, you saw the law of God, you didn't want to do it, and even if you did want to do it, you couldn't do it. But now, in, in, as you're redeemed, you see the law of God, and you want to do the law of God. And Paul articulates that evidence pretty well from our illustration from Romans 7, 18. As he talks about himself, you can probably re relate to this very well. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, how many can relate to that? You don't have to put up your hand. The, the willing is present in me, the doing of the good is not for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. We recognize that. Verse 20, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, and that's in your flesh, that's in your members, and we see him define that in just verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my, there it is, members. In the flesh where sin has its opportunity to act out, there's the trouble. So it's a constant struggle. Even the Apostle Paul admits to that struggle. Uh, but when you do these kinds of things and you have that struggle and you're going to be like Paul, you're going to see the sin in your life and you're not going to like it. And you see it very clearly because you understand the law of God. And you want to wrestle with that. And I see these things in my life that I hate, Paul says. And you're going to develop this habit of admitting that sin and confessing it and repenting of it. 
And so you're going to see God's law. You're going to want to do God's law. That's going to be the characteristic of your life. Number two, as we saw last time, your life is going to be characterized by righteousness. You're going to want to be holy. You desire very much to be holy. Not walking as close as you can to the world, which is what we saw last time in Hebrews, those who pretend to be part of those who are in Christ, but actually walk in the world, and most of their life is characterized by that. Here we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and a number of other places, Jesus is very clear as he talks to his disciples. He says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter nor stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now mark this right here in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So on the outside, they appeared holy, did they not? They appeared that they did the things they were supposed to do. And unless your righteousness is better than theirs, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. But theirs was an exterior type of righteousness. In Matthew 23, he condemns them very severely. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean up the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So it's not talking about that kind of righteousness, the one that polishes up the outside, the one that makes it difficult for the book of Hebrews for us to identify those who are in the church but not in the faith, because everything's polished up on the outside. So we're not talking about legalism, making sure you've got all the things in your life that you've excluded so you can look holy. We're not talking about that at all. Legalism isn't spirituality. Spirituality is spirituality. They just made sure the external moral things all looked right. That obviously, as we said, does not indicate a valid basis for passing the test. The kind of righteousness that the Lord looks for, the kind that belongs to people who will pass this test, the Apostle Paul is so concerned about in the church, is not just external righteousness, which has to be in place certainly, but an internal one. And what that means is the love of doing what is right. If you're truly Christ, you love righteousness, you love what's right, it's doing right from the heart. You long to do it. It's what we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they, those who mourn over sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are, are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These things all come out of the heart. A transformed heart begins to love those kinds of things. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Faithfulness works its way out in your lifestyle. People see it, and you will get persecuted for it. It's not just polishing up the outside and being good on the outside. It's being genuinely good from the inside, and that flows outward. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so it's a righteousness from the heart. 
So first, you see and you desire to do God's law. Secondly, you're characterized by righteousness. You want to be holy. Thirdly, an additional valid basis for passing the test, your life will be characterized by submission to Jesus' rule over you. Oh, are you talking about somebody submitting to the Lordship of Christ? No, I'm not. If you've come to Christ, you are submitted to Christ's Lordship. And may I say this also, everybody who's ever lived and who will ever live on the face of the earth is under Christ's Lordship, whether they admit it or not. And someday, everybody will be required to admit it, and they will bow their knee to Him. The fact of the matter is, you're not born again if you haven't submitted to Jesus' right to rule over you. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. It can't mean anything else. So, you will willingly, gratefully, happily submit to Jesus, and you count the cost, which is illustrated very well in Luke 14 again, as Jesus speaks to His disciples that are following Him, He says, now Luke records for us, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that might not be the way you want to start your sermon on a street corner. That's not going to be well received. But is Jesus talking about actually hating your father and mother and all of that? No, he's not. What's he talking about? Preferring Christ, characterized by Jesus' rule over you, above all of those other things. doesn't mean you don't take care of them. It doesn't mean you have to, you don't, as a minister, have to raise your children to walk in, in holiness. You have to do that. You have to commit yourself to doing those kinds of things. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. The fact of the matter is, though, as it comes to hierarchy, our love and commitment to Christ is greater, which gives us the ability to do those kinds of other things. Whoever does not carry his own cross and, want, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So that's a complete submission to Jesus and his commands and right to rule over you. I don't think he left anything out. It's mostly lumped in in those general terms. You give all you have, if need be, the opposite of what the rich young ruler was willing to do. You make whatever sacrifice because nothing is as valuable as submitting to Jesus in your life. And you're willing to follow him and do whatever he asks. And that's the longing of your heart. And you may not do it perfectly, but it's your intense desire. And more so, as you've known him longer, if that's the case, that is valid terms for understanding that you passed the test. So we we see and desire to do the law of God, characterized by righteousness. You want to be holy, characterized by a submission to Jesus' rule over you. And four, and and this is second to last because we could go on and on with this, but it's a valid basis for passing the test is your life will be characterized by obedience. And these overlap, of course, because the scripture overlaps. Submitting to Jesus as, as his rule over you is certainly obedience, is it not? But this is something that we understand from James. In James 1, 21 through 24, he says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves, here it is, 
doers of the word, not merely hearers of hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So that second part certainly would indicate being in the church and not in Christ. The first part would have everything to do with proving yourselves doers of the word. You're characterized by obedience. When you read the scripture, it compels you from the heart, and you love to be obedient to it. See, does that mark your life? When you read the word of God, do you desire to obey it? And that should be all the more. See, maturity is not marked by how many seminars you attend, or what position you have in the church, or how long you've been in the church, or anything. Obedience is marked by reading the Word. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then begin to apply it. And the longer you do that, the more mature you become. And so if you're just on the basics, and you can't even obey the basic things, I would say, much like we said out of Hebrews, it's likely if all you know is the basics and all you do is the basics, that's not a valid uh, proof that you're in the faith. But if your desire is to be obedient and to see what the Word says and not forget what you see, but to do it, then that's a legitimate reason to say, it's likely that I passed the test. In John, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You know, if you want to be characterized by obedience, you will say, and most will say, I love God. And we sang it just a little bit ago, how much we love Him, adore Him, and we do. But the fact of the matter is that we show we love God by what? By obeying His commands. We can say we love Him all we want, but it's not sentiment. It's action in obedience. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's the greatest desire of your heart, see, because you truly have a relationship with God through His Son. And then finally, number five, a valid basis for passing the test, your life will be marked by love. Love of the Word, love of the church, love for God's people, love for the gospel. These things are part and parcel of you. Why? Because you've been born in Christ's image, and you have those characteristics now because that's His characteristics. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Do you love the church? Do you love the people in the church, beloved? Do you desire to be with them, really above all family and everything else? Like, or, or when your family's in town, do you just decide, well, I won't be in church for the next couple weeks? Well, which one is it? Do you love the church? Do you love His people? Do you love the Word? Do you love the ministry of the church? Well, that comes out in your life by how you arrange your priorities. Your life is going to be marked by love. And you'll love the people that, that have been born again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So it gets right down to the nitty gritty there. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know we have passed out of death and into life because we what? Because we love the brethren. You know that you're born again. A valid test that you pass from death to life is you love the church. You love people who are in it. You love people who call themselves believers. You even love people who call themselves believers who are not your friends. And they've considered themselves your enemy. And they pick on you. And they've, they've written things about you. And they've disparaged you. And you're supposed to pray for them and still love them. And beloved, can I tell you a little secret after 30 years of ministry? You know, when people do you wrong 
and then they leave and they, and they say all kinds of terrible things about you, you still have to love them. Did you know that? Even if they don't show any of that to you. And if you pray for them and you pray for their health and pray for their prosperity and pray that the Lord will bless them through his word, if they'll have good ministry and encourage them, you begin to love them. See, like Christ would love them. Because even God pours rain on wicked men. And so that love expressed even in difficulty shows that you're one of Christ. Do you have that as a characteristic? Because that is a valid reason to say, yes, I passed the test. Verse 16. We know love love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We see that very clearly, that exchange of Christ's love for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't, see? And so that's the opposite proof. Little children, let us not love with word, with tongue, but in deed and truth. And as Jason read earlier this morning, it goes on and says, if we love, we have confidence in judgment. If that love is manifested in us, then when judgment comes, we know we're Christ's. There's no question because we can't do this on our own. We can do it only because we've been regenerated. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You came to faith so that you could express a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently then love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. If you love God, you love his son, and you love his word, and you love his church and his people, you're going to of even the people who hate you. And you can't ever verify your salvation on the basis of a past event, how emotional, no matter how real you felt, and you can't base it on the longevity in the church or even leadership in the church. Or how emotional you get about Jesus or how you feel good about Jesus or you just like God and you love Him, you know, and whatever, but your, your life doesn't, all, all evidence to the contrary, or how pious you've always been, or how legalistic you are, or how you've excluded from your life everything that people can point at and say, hey, that's worldly. There's no proof in any of that, see. Or how much you give. It's only these things, see, these legitimate things that we've looked at that can help you say, as Paul wants you to do, look at that verse and take the appropriate time with it and ask the right questions about your life. Test yourself, he says, if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or, you do not, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Don't you? Do you see that? Or, unless indeed you fail the test? And Paul's desire is that this reappraisal should take place before he reaches Corinth. And the church, if it reacts properly to this admonition from Paul and this letter, discipline will prove unnecessary. And that was our example from Paul, number 14 from our passage, of a faithful minister is a consistent call for self-evaluation. And he didn't exclude himself. Now let's check back in with our passage. We'll pick up right where we left off before we put a pause button and looked at that very important question. When you look at the inventory that we've illustrated throughout the scripture, it's going to be these things that will identify you as passing the test and that Christ is in you. Paul's logic is really devastating for the church. Let the Corinthians take time to examine themselves instead of he proving to them that he's legitimate. Let them dwell on the truth, which the apostle does not mention at this point, that they are what they are thanks to his ministry. In other words, if they pass the test or if they realize they're lost, for either of those realized realities, they can thank Paul. And that's why he says in verse 6, look there if you would, but I trust you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. 
If they realize either of these two things, they have to conclude that Paul's the real deal. He's an accredited apostle because he was faithful to make sure they understood those two things which are very important to ministry in the church. He taught consistently and constantly so the church could respond in repentance. Conviction of sin, contrition over sin, confession of sin, turning from sin, repeat daily. That's the life of the believer. And that pattern of life will give evidence of salvation and passing the test. Now look at verse 7. And these last few verses are really packed with examples and marks of faithful ministry. In fact, I would say some of the most powerful and, and perspective changing in the letter, if not in the entire New Testament. And I think you're going to be encouraged as we look at them. Look at verse 7. Now, we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. And we move really right back to a wonderful example of Paul as a minister as he starts this statement, and that's now we pray to God that you do no wrong. And Paul knows, as we've noted, that he can't do anything uh, within his own power to guarantee an eternal outcome. He realized that early on with Corinth, no matter how hard he worked, it wasn't going to be his physical labor that was going to change the hearts of the people. He certainly desires to speak Christ to them, and he does that through the Word, and every minister desires to be a living example of that. You want to speak Christ to people? Don't go up and say, the Lord told me to tell you something. That's wrong, and there's no way for anybody to verify that or for them to verify that. What you do to speak Christ to people is you give them his word, and that's what, Christ, that's what Paul did. And he knows from verse 4 that he is weak in himself, and so he goes, this goes very well with these fundamentals of his ministry. So this would just be an obvious uh, example, number 15 from Paul, of faithful minister, and that is to bring those he ministers to before the Lord in prayer. And of course, this seems to be a desperate situation. From Paul's perspective, a lot of things hang in the balance, and he has this cloud, as it were, hanging over his visit, an unwelcome business meeting, as we've said before, where he's not looking forward to coming and having people be unpleasant and rude. And so he's trying to preempt that by writing this last letter to make sure they see his heart and understand what he's planning to do. So if Paul comes to court then and discovers that many still resent him and many remain unrepentant, then the damage will possibly be beyond remedy. And we certainly saw that as we looked at Revelation 2 and 3 and the examples of the New Testament church that are still examples now where Jesus said, repent and turn from these things or I'll come and take away your lampstand. And we know that many of these uh, churches in Asia Minor that we saw in Revelation 2 and 3 did go out of existence because they refused to repent. And so the damage could possibly be beyond remedy or maybe after the discipline he's going to have to bring, there's going to be a long time before they get back to where they should have been to begin with because they wouldn't walk in obedience. And so again, he affirms that he trusts in the out, that outcome to God, and he, but he prays that they will, here it is, do no wrong. So he's not just praying, it's everything that he's thinking about right now is being col uh, colored by the fact that there are some, there's trouble in the church. And do no wrong is aorist, active, infinitive. So a continuing prayer that they avoid wrong, a continuous avoiding of wrong, which is the adjective kakos, which is the Greek word for bad, morally, or by way of thinking or feeling or acting. And Paul uses the same word, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, so you can get the feel of it. He says, do not be deceived, our word, bad company corrupts good morals. You show me your friends, I'll show you your, your direction you're going to go. Bad, that's our word, keikos, company, corrupts good morals. Why? Because they're bad morally, by way of thinking, feeling, or acting, and that's going to rub off on you. How about Colossians 3, 5? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, our word, keikos, evil desire, that's our word, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Consider your members of your earthly body dead to those things. Paul prays that they will. 
not do any of those things. Do no wrong. My prayer for you is that you continue to live a life that is absent of wrongdoing or evil or bad things. And that gives us our next number 16 example from the Apostle Paul. And that helps us understand Paul from a faithful, as a faithful minister, that is to always be concerned about the obedience of the church. His overriding concern is that they do no wrong. He was focused on that, for that they would be successful in their walk with the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 21, he mourned over those who were disobedient. We saw that he knew if he was going to come, it would bring him very low, too, it says. Uh, that fact that he had taught them that whole time, he was concerned for their upbuilding and everything that he did, and to find them still walking in sinfulness. And we said before, and this is just a reminder to you, the worst possible scenario of a faithful pastor isn't that someone doesn't like him. It's not the worst scenario, isn't that somebody gossips about him or that they make a little list about him or whatever it is, you know, or the church can't pay his salary. That's not, the most, that's not the worst thing that could happen. That's not the worst possible scenario. The worst scenario for a faithful pastor is in spite of the teaching that they've received, they choose to walk in disobedience and in a worldly manner over time. That's the worst possible scenario. And we can see that in Paul reflected all over the place. And so we see him bringing to the Lord these things that concern him, and, and in, in this example, things that can go hard on him, or things that can go hard on the church and bring disrepute on the gospel, or on Christ, or on their testimony, or bring discipline, or the Lord's chastening, and he wants to avoid that for them, and for him. But it's also important to remember that, that prayer time should also include the church at other times, too, when things are going well preemptive prayers. They can avoid sinfulness. And, and we had that at the men's uh, perfectness the other, uh, yesterday morning. We spent a lot of time in prayer at our table, and many of the men were praying these preemptive types of prayers that we see in the Scripture for the church. And it was just so encouraging to my own heart to hear them uh, say those things. Most of the time, prayer time is dominated by health issues and grandma's bunions and you know, somebody has cancer. And those, those things are important, and, and it's not that we don't bring them to the Lord, but they are not, they're not the most important things, beloved. Did you know? And sometimes the difficult things in our life, we should we really be praying that the Lord will use them to mold us and make us more like Christ. In some respects, the process is important instead of hoping that it'll just be over. So these are important things, and, and I think that um, preemptive prayers help the church avoid sinfulness and stay on the right track. There's a great example of that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. I'll just give you one example. And Paul talks uh, to the church by letter, and he says, In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And for this reason, too, I'm having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you. That's, that's so cool, isn't it? As you read that, these are all good things, right? They heard the gospel. They believed it, and they were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and their faith was growing, and their love for one another was growing, and they're going well, and Paul's still praying. He's not coming and saying, don't do this and don't do that. You need to stop doing this, and you know, I'm going to have to come and have discipline with you. you know, I didn't play any, none of that was coloring his prayer here. He was rejoicing in all those things that we're doing. And then he says this, and Paul's still praying. He says, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So he's praying more things preemptively, isn't he? In a prophylactic way. Listen, the more that you, 
The more that you have wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of God, that's going to be helpful to the church. And, and, and I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you begin to understand from the inner part of you. You will know what's the hope of His calling, and that will encourage you, even in difficult times, if you know the hope of His calling for you. That's good, isn't it? To be reminded of that future that you have with the Lord, because your best life is not now, it's in the future, and you're here doing what the Lord wants you to do, which may cause difficulty for you. And what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Just what you have to inherit in the place that you sit, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? How big is that power? How, how much? These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In just a few weeks, we're going to have Resurrection Sunday, and the power that brought Christ out of the grave is the power Paul wants the church to begin to realize and, and, and be encouraged with. Not that some miraculous thing can happen, not that you can do these powerful things. That's not what the Lord's intending here. And so you understand the power that's at work in you as a believer and begin to act in faith on that. You know, and we often try to comfort those in need by assuring them of our prayers. That's not wrong. There's hard things. We need to bring those before the Lord. Certainly the Lord hears those things. You know, we see plenty of examples from Jesus in that. The person who was knocking and needing bread, and the person wouldn't give it, and they finally opened it up. And if you know how to, you know, if you give your father, if you know how to give your son good gifts, doesn't your father in heaven also know how to give you good gifts? So we have plenty of these examples of difficult times and hardship, and you're asking for it. We do. We pray for those things. We lift up the needs we know of, and then we pray for other things. But this situation in Corinth is a lot graver than the one in Ephesus. Problems generated by false teachers and, and immaturity in the church colored everything he's asking here. So he asked the Lord they would continue in a pattern, not of wrongdoing, but of doing what's right. And again, this is another great example from Paul. Always concerned about the obedience of the church. Now let's look at this next portion of the verse. It's just packed really, really full. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. And that may do what is right, present active subjunctive, and we know that the subjunctive mood has some contingency involved. It's one of the only moods that we have in Greek that has contingency. In fact, it may not happen unless some, something else happens, a kind of an if-then reality. And so the reality remains contingent upon future developments. You're going to do what's right. Well, if, if you fail the test, you'll have to repent. If you pass the test, then you need to come in line with what the Word of God says and, and obey Paul's authority. So there's no small amount of doubt, and, and um, they haven't been doing it up until now. And Paul's prayer is for a change, so they will avoid wrongdoing and do what they know to do. And that, again, consumes his efforts and his prayers. Now, here's one of the most genuine statements, I think, in all of these examples from Paul, and perhaps all of the scriptures in the New Testament Make a continued habit of avoiding the bad and change to do what is right, but not, here he says, that we ourselves may appear approved. The faithful pastor isn't building his kingdom. He's not building his reputation. He isn't looking for recognition when the church walks with the Spirit. He doesn't care if people think, wow, he really knows what he's doing. And then on the other side of it, make a continued habit of avoiding the bad and change to do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. 
And I've often wondered how many times this has been repeated in churches throughout all the ages. When the pastor did what he was supposed to do and nobody ever thought he knew what he was doing, right? And, and yet the church flourished. And as I said at first service, in some respects, I think this is one of the things we need to make sure our seminary graduates understand. It's not going to go like you think it's going to go. You have expectations that everything you do is going to be affirmed by a bunch of numbers in the church and things are going to be just popping everywhere. You've got a big shock coming. The average size of a church is 40. And if most of our interns are doing their internships at Thomas Road, that's not a realistic expectation of what you get to do. And perhaps not even a good model to model what you're doing. To realize, you need to realize the fact that, you know what, you're the Lord's servant. He's going to use you as he sees fit. And it may be what Paul's doing. to come in and you have to make sure the church is pure and purged. Maybe. That's certainly not going to make you popular. And most people are going to say, you have no idea what you're doing. Does that matter to Paul? Make a continued habit of avoiding the bad and change to do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. And here's what he's saying in essence. As important as his reputation is to this ministry, and as necessary as it seems to convince people to have confidence in his leadership, and as essential as it would appear to be that people trust him and believe that what he says comes from God, mark this, he would set those things aside as long as they responded in obedience. Do you catch that? He's perfectly fine with never being recognized as knowing how to do anything as long as they switch from doing wrong to doing good. And that's Paul's next and perhaps most powerful example of a faithful minister. He is predominantly and largely not concerned about himself being affirmed, but about a Christ-like outcome. That's what he's concerned about. In that they would not do what's wrong, but would do what is right. And so I want, you to, I want you to put this on for a minute, because this is very, very important as it relates to ministry. But I think you can connect it to your own life, and it might come across uh, with better understanding. Nobody wants to be unfairly maligned, okay? We're not saying you should be rejoicing in that, unless, of course, you're being maligned because of your testimony for Christ, and then you're supposed to rejoice because that's what the prophets of old did, right? But nobody wants to be unfairly maligned. Most people want to be liked. Most people want to be appreciated. Most people like to be affirmed in their chosen field. So here's the question. Would you take the maligning and give up being liked and appreciated and affirmed to make sure those under your care did what was right? Would you be okay with that? Because that's the ultimate in humility, is it not? That you don't care whether or not people appreciate you or affirm you or, 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 or think that you know what you're doing just as long as they do what they're supposed to do. As a coach, think about this. Would you give up any recognition of your ability if all your players succeeded? And even more, if you really want to bring it right alongside what Paul said, not just they would succeed, and not just that would be okay, but if everyone thought you were inept and clueless and never gave you any credit, but your team succeeded and the individual succeeded, would you be okay with that? That is precisely what Paul is saying with the church. And you can see how hard that is. And that's why I say, of all, the, of all the, the marks of ministry and of all of the faithful examples that we have, that may be the most powerful one, and there's some big ones. Because that really has to do with where you are and what your motivation is. See, 
Because you can really tell a lot about a person depending on what they need to keep going. I was talking about this earlier. You know, people get burned out in the ministry. Do you know why? It's not because they're more busy than anyone else. It's because they expected one thing to happen, and that didn't happen. And it didn't happen over a long period of time, and they got discouraged, and finally they just said, that's it. That's really where burnout comes from. It's not from working hard. We can work hard. But if our understanding is, particularly in ministry, it doesn't matter if people recognize you or they think you know what you're doing or you get to write a book because you're really successful in the ministry. If that doesn't matter to you, then you're right where you need to be. And you're not going to be discouraged, see? And you come out of seminary, you're like, okay, I'm just the Lord's servant and all I have to do is bring what he put in the kitchen to the table without spilling anything. And I'm going to do that over and over again. And I'm going to make sure I bring the church a chance to have self-evaluation and have an opportunity to repent. I'm going to do it over and over. See, and it doesn't matter if they ever think that you're any good at it, as long as they're doing what they're supposed to do. And that's really it. And, and as you think about that, okay, as you think, many of you, and, and I have been in a place where people don't appreciate you, okay, and, and, they, and they belittle you or whatever. And, and in your flesh and in your humanness, when you're being slandered and you're being criticized and gossiped about, maligned, and all the little lists about how bad you are, and all, it gets circulated around, and your character's being, you know, assassinated, and people are picking out every supposed failure, like they were doing with Paul. You know, he's not a lot, he's not much to look at. And he doesn't have any great strength. And, you know, he has a really powerful writing ability, but when he comes, very unimpressive. He's not a good speaker, no force of character. You know, his Google rating is one star out of five on satisfaction. There's always something in you that thinks. I'd really like to get into this one-on-one with this person and put this on display. You know, I can come in and show them I can do and be what I am and say I am and put them in their place. Show them my expertise and my authority and make my resume really pop, right? And that's understandable, but it's pretty self-serving, isn't it? Because you want people to respect you, and I get that. And obviously, Paul was concerned that the church knew he was the real deal, And he was concerned that they knew he spoke Christ to them. But we see now, not that they would affirm him and say, you really know what you're doing. But so that they would obey. So that they would flourish spiritually. And his deepest longing was for the obedience of his church, his beloved church. And if that meant that he had to go on appearing to be disqualified in their eyes, and in the eyes of the false apostles and the false teachers and the part of the church that had been taken captive by them, he was okay with that. And I think that's powerful. As long as they were obedient, the other stuff didn't matter to him. I would rather pray to God that you do no wrong, Paul says, and I don't need to pad my resume. I don't need a letter of introduction with my bio so you'll give me the honor I deserve. In fact, Remember what he said back in 1 Corinthians 4.1, and we're going to end with this. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards, those who've been placed to trust, of the mystery of God. That's what he was concerned about. Servants of Christ. And in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, doing what you're supposed to do, But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. 
For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Just because I don't think I did anything wrong, it doesn't mean I didn't. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives, beloved, the motives, that's where it's at, isn't it, of men's hearts, each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, as it relates to the ministry I do, I really only care what the Lord thinks about me. And you couple that with the attitude and the examples that Paul brings, there's a lot of freedom in that place. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're going to have a missions moment in just a minute. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're very grateful for for its power. We thank you for Paul as he reveals his heart to the church, that it gives us such great examples of what it looks like to function as a minister. We're going to see in our next studies what the requirements of those who wish to serve the church in that position are to be as far as life and testimony go. But here we get to see what the qualified do and what a, what a wonderful example it is. And what a blessing and an aspiration and goals to reach for and do. So Father, I pray that you take your word, seal it in our heart, that we might understand it. We begin to put it into place, begin to change our thinking about how we do our ministry, our small group, our Sunday school. We might be looking for affirmation only from you. And that will be the kinds of people that you want us to be in your church, doing what you want us to do. We don't always know even what that is other than what you've given us to do and then what you're going to do with your church as your business. So, Father, I pray that that will be the case will be, and will be a church like that who sees what your word says, what it means by what it says, and applies it on a regular basis, personally and corporately. We might be the type of church you want us to be, where you want us to be, doing the things you'd like us to do until we see your son. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who we long to see. Before we close.